0: Amen. We are in John chapter 6 and we're going to begin in verse 30 and go through 35 this morning. <clears throat> As you remember the beginning of this chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men. It it, it probably was upwards of 20,000 people, somewhere between 12 and 20,000 just depends on your calculations of women and children that were involved in this meal. Jesus fed them Two fish and five barley loaves. It's a very picturesque uh, event. If you think about it, Jesus is giving a real life picture of what He will say in verses, verse 35 and through the rest of this chapter. I am the bread of life. If you come to Me, you'll never get hungry. If you believe in Me, you'll never thirst again. I mean, He provided for those people maybe 20,000 there with five loaves and two fish. And what's more incredible, what's more amazing than even that, is the fact that He has provided salvation and satisfaction for millions through one act on the cross. And through the one life of obedience to the Father. It's an amazing thing if you just stop and think about it. So we saw this great miracle. And then Jesus walked on the water and we looked at that together. The fact that He did it purposefully. He sent the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He sent the disciples themselves on the boat into the storm. And then He came to them. And His comfort was not that He caused the storm to cease as soon as they were in danger. His comfort to them was not that He, he uh, gave them some supernatural... Uh, you know, strength within themselves to just not be afraid of the storm. His comfort was the simple words, It is I. Peace. It is I. Don't be afraid. His comfort to them was His comfort to us. In our storms, in our life, He comes many times during the storms not to calm the storm immediately, but to say, Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. It's me. I'm Jehovah. I'm the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I am. That was his comfort to them. He left uh, uh, one side of the Galilean Sea and he moved across to the other. And the crowd followed him. And they were amazed that he was there because there was no other boat for him to travel there. We talked about that. And then they began to question him about what they had to do in order to be doing the works of God. And that's kind of where we left off with Jesus' replying, verse 29, where He says, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. We spent a lot of time talking. Last time I was with you, two weeks ago now, talking about this seeming, seemingly contradictory fact that all of the work of God is faith. You want to do the work of God? Then believe in Jesus. That is the work of God for us. Believe in Him. And yet, the Bible is filled with things that we are, as Christians, supposed to be living out in our life. And so some of you came to me after the message and were very concerned about that. We talked about it in Sunday school. I hate you missed it. If I'd have had forewarning about teaching Sunday school, I would have called you and let you know I was teaching it. But we looked at James and we talked about faith. And the fact that faith is a receiving grace. All faith does is receive. It can't actually do. It just accepts, receives. It's the conduit. It's the root, all those analogies we talked about, about faith. And what is it the conduit of? It is the conduit of God's saving grace, which sanctifies us to good works. See, that's the thing that we try to get in this either or as Christians. Either it's grace, all grace, or I'm supposed to do it. It's it's both and. It is all of grace. And the sanctifying, saving grace of God will produce good work in you. Fruit, Jesus calls it. It's not either or. You don't choose between them. It's the same thing. Faith is active. It is not dead. It is living. And it is active. And it bears fruit because of the source our faith is planted in. So Jesus would say, if your faith is in another system of belief, besides Christianity, besides believing in Me, then you will produce bad fruit. And you'll be judged of God. But if your faith rests, abides, is grafted into Me, and I'm the source, I'm the energy, I'm the resource from which you receive everything you do, it is good work, and it's acceptable to My Father, and He will judge it and give you reward. It's not either or. I want you to understand that. We're not not making a choice. I believe in grace, and I believe in works. That's nonsense to the Bible. Grace works. Faith works. And what it produces in us through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is faithful fruit. That's what it produces. And that's what He talks about There in 29 is that faith alone is what saves you. Now we come to verse 30. How do lost men respond to that truth? What is the response of some of you in this room when I say that? Maybe it's like their response. The lost man arrogantly questions Christ. He rises up in opposition to this truth. I don't want you to save me based on your work. I want you to say I'm a good man. God, Jesus, I want you to accept me for who I am and what I've done. And if that's not good enough, then I'm not sure I want to be saved. That's the response of the lost man to the offer of genuine faith and grace. The gift of God. Look at it in verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? That's their challenge to Jesus. You want us to believe? Then give us something to believe in. Give us a sign. Jesus has already performed many signs for them. Think about it. In John chapter 2, He changed the water to wine. In John chapter 4, He healed the nobleman's son. In John 6, He fed the people, maybe 20,000 from five loaves and two fish he walked on water all of these signs of his miraculous powerful divine nature and yet they asked for a sign look in verse 2 of chapter 6 and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick it's not just the signs that John chose to record for us under inspiration that Jesus was doing he was doing many signs all the time. As a matter of fact, good authorities tell us today that Israel during Christ's time on the earth was as close to a perfect state of health and well-being at any time in the world. Judea was revolutionized by this point in Jesus' ministry. Lame people were walking. Blind people were seeing. Paralyzed men regained their strength. People were being fed Food was in good supply. Clothes was being, clothing was being given to the poor through the temple. And the Jewish nation was getting, receiving this through Jesus Christ and His ministry. Everywhere He went, He was healing the sick. Everywhere He went, He was feeding the hungry. Everywhere the Lord set out to go, He made a difference. And yet they come to Him... At this point in his ministry, having done all of these great signs, and they say, we want a sign so we'll believe in you. That's the response of a lost man. One more proof. One more thing. you got to show me one more time. Some of you are sitting in that position today. If God would do one more thing to show He's real, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. If God would just come back in the flesh and stand before me and tell me the truth, I'd believe it. No. You wouldn't. You would deny it was Him. You would say it was a charade. You might come up with a conjure up another test for Him to step through, but you would not believe in Him. Don't fool yourself. A lost man's response is arrogant. He questions Christ. He demands more signs. Jesus is not obligated to perform any sign to validate the fact that He is God. Don't fool yourself. Laying out all these fleeces before the Lord as if he, des- he, de- he deserves your faith. As if He needs you in some way to believe in Him. He's not in need of anything. I would say to you, as a lost man or woman or child today, you can ask Him all you choose to prove Himself. He's already proven. He is the Lord. And there is no one like Him. And now as all is left is to believe in Him. To accept Him by simple childlike faith. Matthew sixteen four. Jesus says, it is a wicked and perverse generation that asks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus said, wicked and perverse people ask for more and more signs. The only sign you're going to receive is my death, burial, and resurrection after three days. That's enough. 1 Corinthians one twenty two. Paul says, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks Seek after wisdom. See, the Jewish people had always asked for a sign, hadn't they? Think back to Exodus chapter 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there. But the story of the burning bush and Moses meets Jehovah, I Am. And he says, remember what he says? When I go to them and tell them I've met with you in the desert, and they ask who sent me, what's the sign you're going to give that you sent me? Even the great Moses asked for signs. God was merciful. He said, if you want a sign, here's one... Take that staff and throw it on the ground. It will become a snake. Now pick it up by the tail. It will be a staff again. That will be a sign to you. And if they won't believe that one, stick your hand into your coat. When you pull it out, it will be leprous, white as snow. When you place it back in and pull it out, it will be cleansed. If they won't believe those signs, they are not my people. See, the Jews always were asking for a sign. Not because they desired to believe, but because they were arrogant in their hearts against the Lord. And many of you today are in this same place. If God would just give me the desire of my heart, if He would give me that guy, if He'd give me that girl, if He'd give me success in my job, if He'd give me the house I want, if He would make me rich, if He would do this, I would believe. No. You won't believe. The very fact that you would ask for another sign proves that you're hardened in unbelief and you've rejected Him in your heart and your mind. People in our day are no different than the people in Jesus' day. They respond to the offer of genuine grace from God through faith, and they respond to that with arrogant questioning. There's another part of this passage I want us to look at. Lost men wrongly desire physical blessings. Look in 31. They go from asking for a sign to say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They move from asking for a sign to talking about physical food, manna, which came down from heaven. The focus of the lost man is always on his physical blessing. Many of the fleeces he throws before the Lord are, if you'll prosper this in my life, if you'll not take my sick child, or if you'll not take my sick mother in death, then I'll believe in you. That's the fleeces thrown out by the lost man. The arrogance of his heart is shown by these questions and answers that he wants to enter into with the Creator, with his own God. The Jews attributed the giving of manna from heaven to Moses. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to me. We know that because Jesus says, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. In their history... They had begun to equate Moses with the one who called down bread from heaven like he was the one who provided for the children in the, in, in the wilderness. When the reality is in Exodus 16, God said, Go to them and tell them, I will give them bread from heaven. They're to gather it on six days. And from the sixth day, they're to gather two parts because on the seventh day, they're to rest. If they take more than they need on any of the other days, it will rot in their tents and turn to worms. And if they, take, if they try to wait until the Sabbath day to go gather their food on that seventh day, there will be no blessing from heaven. God gave them the bread from heaven. And yet they in their history and in their pride and in their arrogance had elevated Moses to the giver of gifts. The Jews were expecting the second Messiah to give them the bread like the first Messiah gave them. We, we know this because it's mentioned in the Midrash, the, the commentary that runs down the Old Testament uh, the Old Testament pages as written by the scribes and the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, they had, all, they had all begun to believe that when the Messiah came, one of the great things He would do would be to rain food down from heaven. It would be the eternal welfare state. Everybody would have plenty physically. They would have food that would come from the sky. They would have clothing. They would have homes. They would have riches. They would be freed from the oppression of the, of the empire that was, was over them, the Roman Empire. They would be physically blessed. The whole re- religion of the Jewish people had now come to a physical religious activity. It wasn't about knowing God. It wasn't about the spiritual growth of a man anymore. It was now based in on completely on God's physical blessing for their life. So here in verse uh, thirty one, Jesus is responding to them. There's no sign. And by the way, Moses didn't do that sign. My father gave that bread, and he's giving the true bread from heaven even now. That's the truth. And so the Jews are focused on physical fulfillment. Look in thirty one verse B. Uh, verse thirty one part B. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's true enough. In Exodus 16, we're told that manna began to rain rain down from heaven. And for 40 years, six days a week, the the ground was covered with manna. For 40 years in their wandering years in the desert, God provided for them from heaven. And now they're asking Jesus to do the same thing. Now, Jesus, isn't it interesting that Jesus has just fed 20,000 people from five loaves and two fish. And what they're basically saying is, you did it one time, we want it for 40 years. We want you to do it every day for the rest of our life. Give us this food so we don't have to work, so we don't have to labor. They're focused on the physical nature of life. And so I want to ask you a question, because I think it's a question that fits here. Are you committed to Christ because He has given you physical blessings? Is that what your commitment and your faith is based on? I've had a good life. I've got a beautiful wife, children, a home, a job, food enough in the pantry. I'm blessed, so I love Jesus. You could ask this question another way, and I will. Think of it this way. Will you remain in Christ if He strips away everything we know as success and wealth in this world? Will you still believe in Christ? Will you still remain committed? If He takes away, draws back to Himself the physical blessings that He's currently giving you. That's the question. That differentiates a lost man's response and a Christian man's response. When God comes to the lost man and pulls away physical blessings, He responds in utter hatred, in rebellion, in cursing. And when he draws back from a Christian man, from a true believer, one who really believes in Christ, physical things, the response is like Job's. I came from the womb naked. I'm returning to the ground naked. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yet though He slay me, I will worship Him. When the world says curse God and die, the answer from a faithful Christian is, I cannot curse Him. He is life and breath to me. The focus becomes spiritual in a Christian man's life. It's not whether you're in, in listen, whether you're in poverty or wealth, as a Christian, we, whether we're in poverty or wealth, good times or bad, that, does, that, that change physically should have no impact on the goodness of God in our minds and hearts. It should have no impact on whether we believe we're right with God or not right with God. He is our God and we are His people. We are planted in His land eternally. We cannot be moved. He loves us. And though He take this whole world away from us and leave us naked and starving, yet we would say, I want to praise Him. I love Him. A life of joy. A life of satisfaction in Christ and Him alone. Our world is filled with the contrary gospel, with a new gospel It goes by a lot of labels. We like to pick on it because we think we're free of it. Health and wealth or prosperity gospel or whatever it is. Whatever label you've given it. It's a false gospel. But let me warn you, before you go jumping on the TV preacher, the televangelist, or the guy in the tent down the road who's talking about health, wealth, and prosperity, look inside at your own life and say, Will I serve Him? Will I love Him? Will I remain unmoved even if He strips life from me? Will I still love Him? It's easy to cast stones outward. It's difficult to turn the eye inward and to say, you know what, this whole Christian life for me really has boiled down to God's been good to me, therefore I love Him. And if He ceased in my mind to be good to me, I wouldn't love Him anymore. I'm afraid that the American church is not being persecuted to death. Oh, that it would be persecuted to death. Oh, that it would be burned at the stake. Because what we are dying from is prosperity. What we are dying from is laziness, spiritual, undiscipline, the reliance on the things of this world rather than the reliance of a pilgrim on the things of that world we are no better than the Jews in this in this passage in many ways we feel good physically therefore we love god i'm just challenging you to think that's a lost man's response he desires physical things He is not focused on the eternal. The lost man arrogantly replies against Christ. And what do we see Jesus doing in this passage? Jesus is the life-giving and life-sustaining bread of heaven. Look at verse 32 through 35. Jesus says, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, this is something you need to grasp hold of, Jesus is saying. This is the crux of my message God the Father gives you true bread from heaven. God the Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven, that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. God gives both physical and spiritual bread. Don't hear me wrongly. God does bless us physically. Everything we have, indeed, is His, it's a blessing. Just listen to this smattering of Scripture that might call your mind to this thought. One place is Matthew 6, verse 11, when His disciples ask Him, How then should we pray? This was His prayer. Do you remember it? You probably have said it a hundred or a thousand times. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What? Give us this day our daily bread. Physical bread comes from heaven. Everything we have physically is a blessing from God. Matthew 6, verse 32 is relevant in this this place. Listen to the words of Jesus continuing down in the message. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. What things do the Gentiles seek after? What things do lost men seek after? Physical blessings. The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, what? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That's a very famous quote, isn't it? You've heard that if you've been in church very long. We stop there, though. Verse 34 is so key. Therefore, be anxious for nothing. Therefore, be anxious for nothing, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So in 6.11 he says our, our daily bread. And in 6.32-34 he says the, don't lust after those things. God knows you need all of them. Seek His kingdom first. All those things He'll take care of. That's the lesser things in life. And don't worry about where it's coming from. Don't worry about tomorrow. That's arrogant. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I want to close that by saying this in Lamentations 3, verse 22-24, through a little known passage, but listen to it. Jeremiah says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. And you say, boy, that must have been when things were going great in Jerusalem. No. Jeremiah wrote these words in Lamentation. When the city was under siege, the houses were being burned, disease had taken over, and people were starving to death, babies we're starving to death in the northern and southern tribes of Israel in these moments. That he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. He is my portion. I will be satisfied, in a sense, is what he's saying. And it's at this moment that people are dying all around him. I think he probably wrote this from the pit, standing in the mud of the broken cistern that had leaked out all the water, but there was still mud in the bottom. And he said, From there, the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. And I'm asking you, Christian, or so-called Christian, when He strips away all you have in this physical life, and all you're left with is what He promises you through Jesus Christ for eternity, what will your answer be? Will it be the arrogant, responsible, lost man? How dare God punish me after all these years of service, or will it be the responsible, faithful, loving servant like Job or Jeremiah who says the steadfast love of the Lord never changes. His mercies are new every morning. From the pit He said that. From the mud He said that. When He had no hope of bread He said that. When children were dying from starvation, infants who did not choose to be born, conceived or born, didn't have milk to drink, Because their mothers were starving to death. And yet Jeremiah said, His mercy is new every morning. What's my point? Daily bread comes from the Lord. Physical daily bread comes from the Lord. We should be thankful for it, but we should never ever base our Christianity on this physical blessed world. We should base our Christianity on things unseen. The promises of tomorrow... The new hope for every morning. His grace is new every morning. Manna was a type of the relationship of Christ with His church. Manna was sufficient. It was saving and it was satisfying. There's one thing about manna that is true though. That we need to understand very carefully. Listen. Manna was new every morning. They weren't allowed to take more than they needed for a day. They were forced to come back to the source of their salvation every morning. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. You say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I say, His mercy is new every morning. His manna falls fresh from heaven every day. You can't have more than you need for today. You can have all you need. It's sufficient. It is saving. It is satisfying. But there's there's no leftover. Every day you return to Him, the source of your salvation. It's a relationship. We're not camels in the desert, storing up for the day of trouble. We really are simply buckets that the water overflows from. The source never runs dry, but we never get more than He intends for us this day. You know, you may be facing something even now in your life as a Christian, and you may be saying, I just don't think I can make it tomorrow. You can't make it tomorrow on what He's given you today. But you can make it tomorrow on the fresh mercy He'll give you in the morning. Christianity is a relationship. In John 6, it's painted very clearly. The manna came every morning. You come to me every morning. There's no such thing as living on reserve, store, plenty. There's just enough for today. And so you say my life's anemic. I, I don't see any of these things in my life. My first question might be, have you been with Him today? No, it's been months. No wonder you're hungry. I wonder you're thirsty. And then some of you have seen this true in your life. You've trusted Him. He saved you. And every morning is new. Every day you rise with new grace. Fresh. New. Enough. He is the bread of life. Come to me, he says, and you'll never be hungry. Believe in me and you'll never thirst. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to him. Take the value that he offers himself at no price to you. No silver and gold is necessary. No good works are necessary. Come to him. Come to him. And you will see. Taste and see, the scripture says, that the Lord is good. Good. I challenge you as I leave you today. I challenge you in this. Take Him up on His offer. Come to Him. Sit at His feet, receiving His grace. And in the months to come, you make the decision. Is He enough? Is He satisfying? Is He saving? Is He good? Come to Him. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father, We are all arrogant in our very nature. We rise up in opposition to simple faith because we want to glory in ourselves. Ultimately, we're, we're robbers of Your glory. We're thieves. We take what's not ours. And so God help us as Christians to realize there will never be enough grace today to make it through tomorrow or a month or another year. The grace is for today and then tomorrow His mercies are new. Let us live that, God. Please, this week, let us live that You are new every morning. May we not be hungry. May we not thirst because we are coming to You. We're clinging to You. We're holding to You. Take our taste for worldly things, God. Prune us. Cut us so that we might heal and bear fruit. Lord, do this for Your glory and for Your name and for Your majesty, for Your renown throughout the world. For the lost man, God, I pray He would see Christ as sufficient, as satisfying, as saving. That He would simply receive Christ. Lord, we love You. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.